The book of Leviticus, you ready? All right, Leviticus 1, verse 1. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, and we'll pause. Matter of fact, we won't get to the second half of that verse till next Sunday. But before we get to the substance, it's important, vitally important, that you understand pertaining to Leviticus, both the backdrop as well as the context. You won't understand anything of Leviticus without the backdrop and the context for the book. Here's why that's so key. Look again at the text. Leviticus begins with this phrase, the Lord called to Moses. This would actually be better translated from from the ancient Hebrew into English as the Lord continued calling to Moses. You see, what's implied in the first half of the first verse is that there was this dialogue taking place between the Lord and Moses, this man Moses. A dialogue that was well underway and that the book of Leviticus is in is is in some ways kind of the continuation of this conversation. So the Lord and Moses are talking. They've been talking. Leviticus now records for us a part of the conversation. Like in many ways, jumping directly into Leviticus would be as confusing as starting Breaking Bad in season two. Like skipping the first season and just diving into season two. I mean, you're going to have all kinds of questions right off the bat. Why is this school teacher named Walter White cooking meth with a crazy, often strung out druggie named Jesse? Why is the meth blue? Why is Walter being referred to as Heisenberg? Why are they scheming up a way to kill this Mexican gangster named Tuco? Like without the backdrop and the context provided in season one, the storyline progressed or continued in the first episode of season two would be really puzzling. Needless to say, you'd be lost. And it's in much the same way that diving cold turkey into this book of Leviticus, into Leviticus chapter 1, without taking ample time to consider the overarching narratives that have been provided to us in both Genesis and Exodus. Like, without that, you would have obvious questions from just what we read. I mean, without any backdrop, without any context, you're left with questions. Who's Moses? Like, who's that character? Why is God conversing with him? What are they talking about? What's the tabernacle of meeting? And why is God not just there, but speaking from there? The backdrop for Leviticus really originates with the Genesis account of God speaking, creating, ordering the entire universe. All of this will tie together throughout the Bible study. When you examine the Genesis record pertaining to the physical world, this creation process, it included shaping things through we find separation and subsequent division. Whether it be you know God calling into existence light and then separating it from the darkness, or the firmament above with the one below, or separating land and water. God would speak something into existence only to add then greater distinction by dividing it from something else. It's this pattern we find in the Genesis record. In regards to living things, a comparable order ensued. Concerning plant life, God structured nature 
so that the trees and the grasses and the herbs would what? Yield and yield seed, yield fruit, but what? According to its kind, order, structure. In a similar fashion, God filled the air with birds, placed fish in the sea, created land animals, also what? To reproduce each according to their kind. Everything in creation had a very distinct and particular order. Finally, when God had spoken all things into existence, creation reached a crescendo at the end of the sixth day when God created man in his own image. Male and female, we're told God created him. God's particular order of the world was completed. When he then gives man dominion over all things, as well as a home in the Garden of Eden. What's important to understand for our purposes this morning is that Genesis 1 and 2 present for us this scene of creation that possessed a particular order and structure that yielded peace and harmony. There was no strife between God and the man that he had created. As a result of that, there existed zero conflict between man and the rest of creation that had been charged to his his care and his stewardship. Sadly, though, all of this beautiful order you see in Genesis 1 and 2 instantly is lost the very moment man decided to rebel against the one command of God to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sin entered the human condition, creating problems with man himself, problems with man and man, separation from God. All of creation experienced the effects of this one terrible decision. You might say, in Genesis 3, order turned to chaos as creation started resisting a rebellious man charged with her care. And it didn't take very long for the situation to go from bad. And when I say bad, I'll define it as Genesis 4, one brother killing another, to much worse. In Genesis chapter 6, we read that following several generations from Adam, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's bad. In fact, Genesis 6 tells us that the Lord, as he surveyed humanity by this point, he was sorry that he had even made man. He was grieved in his heart. And what resulted from this was a hard reset. Again, all included in season one. A reset with God destroying the earth with a flood, sparing only one man, a righteous man named Noah and his family. But tragically, even after such a dramatic judgment, according to Genesis, it didn't take but just a few more generations from Noah for man to again rebel against the commands of God. Though God had initially instructed Noah and his family, mankind, to move from the ark and fill the earth. Man instead chose to congregate. Instead of going out, they gathered together. And instead of subduing or filling the earth, they decided to build a great city with a tower that reached into the heavens. In the end, God intervened by confusing their single language. The building of this city of Babel ceased and the human race was then forcibly scattered across the face of the earth. Within the larger story of Scripture, 
And God's ultimate plan to provide a redeemer. This is first mentioned in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 12 marks an important shift in the overall trajectory of the narrative when God specifically decides to now work out His will, His plan of providing a redeemer through not all of the families of the earth, but one. He singles out and He chooses to work through a man named Abraham. And I'm going to speed up a lot of history. Abraham's promised son, Isaac. And then Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and his 12 sons. And it would be through all of their future descendants that God, spoiler alert, would provide Jesus, the Savior of the world. Now, I know, I'm fast-forwarding through a lot of history. This is a summary of season one. You can watch it on your own. But eventually, the Genesis record closes with this man, Jacob, whose name God has already changed to Israel, and his sons moving south from Canaan into Egypt because there was a severe famine in the land. Now, the book of Exodus opens roughly 360 years after the close of Genesis, with Jacob's family still residing in Egypt. But keep in mind, three notable developments have occurred. First, the sons of Israel over these 360 years have had lots and lots of babies. They've had lots of children on account that these men were shepherds and the Egyptians hated shepherds, the Hebrews lived in an outer area of Egypt known as Goshen. And as a result of these ethnic and geographical divisions, these 12 sons of Israel, over these 360 years, each of the sons would grow into their own tribe, and collectively these 12 tribes would become a nation. The children of Israel are literally the children of Jacob through these 12 tribes or the families of these 12 sons. In Exodus 1 verse 7, we read that the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty and filled the land. So they had lots of children. The second development that's important is that while the Israelites had enjoyed a measure of autonomy during the early years of their time in Egypt, because their numbers were swelling so dramatically, drastically, their presence began to worry, naturally, the Egyptians. And to combat their growing threat, in the first chapter of Exodus, we read how the Egyptians began enslaving the Hebrew people in an attempt to curtail their population growth. In Exodus 1, verses 11 through 14, the scene is described the following way. Therefore the Egyptians set taskmasters over the Hebrews to afflict them with burdens. The Jews built for Pharaoh's supply cities, Python and Ramses, but the more the Egyptians afflicted the Hebrews, the more the Hebrews multiplied and grew. And they were in dread, the Egyptians in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. They made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar and brick, in all manner of service in the field. There is no question that throughout this 360 years, life for the Hebrew people, the descendants of Abraham, had grown severely difficult, with very little to no hope of any type of deliverance. They were slaves. 
the last, the third development here is that there seems to be ample evidence from the first few chapters of Exodus that again, during these 360 years in Egypt, God, who'd been very active with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, grew silent. Matter of fact, that's why not a lot of this history is recorded for us. In fact, according to the last several verses of Exodus 2, it was only when the plight of the Israelites had become so intolerable that they even felt compelled to begin crying out for God's help, for salvation. Ultimately, it would then be in response to their afflictions, the cries of their heart, their appeals, that God would break his silence. He would appear in a burning bush to a man named Moses and say to him, I'll read for you Exodus 3, he would say, I am the God of Abraham, saying this to Moses, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now in this exchange, God is crystal clear what his intentions are. He would use Moses to do two things, two goals. He hears the afflictions of his people. And he's going to intervene in two ways. One, he's going to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. So deliverance. But that's not all God would do. He would deliver them, but then he would also lead them back to the land he had promised Abraham. Following his commission to Moses to spearhead the task, Exodus 4 through 18 records the incredible way all of this stuff went down. In the end, God would use 10 devastating plagues to force Pharaoh into letting his people leave. And when Pharaoh then changed his mind, God would create a way of escape for the Israelites by parting the Red Sea. Once freed from the oppression of the Egyptians, once freed and liberated from Egypt, as God had promised Moses, he would then begin embarking on the task of now leading this ragtag group of slaves, this nation, his people, back to their land, the land of promise. Again, two plans. I'll deliver you, and then I'll bring you back. And so God begins leading him through the wilderness. In addition to the sub subsequent supernatural provisions we find, things like manna falling from heaven, we're told in Exodus 13, verse 21, that the presence of the Lord, so you got to think, well, how is God leading them? Well, we're told that the presence of the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. I mean, kind of on a side note, what a spectacular sight that would have been. Not even just the pillar of the cloud, but the fire would have been pretty awesome to have seen. Now they're making their way through the wilderness, God leading them in such a, a supernatural manifestation of his presence. But we find in the midst of this a significant development occurring. Matter of fact, it's a scene that begins for us in Exodus 19. You see, three months following their liberation from bondage and departure from Egypt, God intentionally leads the Israelites to the base of Mount Sinai. 
commands Moses, gives him instructions. The people are to take three days. They're to purify the camp. They're to consecrate themselves. Something big is about to go down. Exodus 19, verses 16 through 20, tells us what follows. I'll read it for you. We're told it came to pass on the third day, in the morning. And again, just try to play this out in your brain. There were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. The sound of a trumpet was very loud, so all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long, it became louder and louder, Moses spoke. And God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai, on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, from this spectacular scene, there's a lot that happens. A lot of going up, going down, dealing with other things. But what we have, generally speaking, are 20 chapters of instructions that God gives to Moses for how his new people were to be ordered and how their society was to be structured. What we know is the the law of Moses, summed up in Ten Commandments. I didn't know if you knew that, that the Ten Commandments are the summary of all of the commandments. But they were given by God to the people. Tablets of stone. With very specific and detailed directives that pertain to almost every single aspect of their lives. Aside from this, God also, during these 20 chapters, He dictated to the people the way that they were to interact with him moving forward. Here's how to live. Here's how we're going to get along. Parts of the process here, God designating from Mount Sinai, the tribe of Levi, again, the family descendants of this man, Levi, they were going to make up the priesthood. They'd come before God on behalf of the people. God also gave Moses the blueprint for the tabernacle, how it was to be specifically instructed, down to every single detail. God even gave, in these 20 chapters, design specs for all the utensils and artifacts and furniture that was to be used in this new place of meeting. Once completed, God's plan was to leave Sinai and indwell this tabernacle, situated in the very midst of the camp. The last chapter of Exodus records Moses setting up this tent, the tabernacle of meeting, following the conclusion of its construction. In Exodus 40, verse 33, we're told that Moses finished the work, only for another awesome thing to happen. We read that the cloud, again, the presence of God, covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night. And the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. Again, can you imagine being there? My friend, this is the backdrop for Leviticus. Moses has just finished setting up the tabernacle. 
The presence of God has descended from, from the top of Sinai, filling this portable tent located in the, in the midst of the people, coming upon the mercy seat atop this newly crafted Ark of the Covenant. From this tabernacle of meeting, the Lord now called to Moses. With Leviticus recording for us the continuation of this important conversation. A conversation, I should again reiterate, that centered upon how the people were to relate to their God and how they were to live in harmony with one another. Let me give for you just a basic outline for the book of Leviticus. The first half, you can divide it into two halves really. First half, chapters 1 through 17, discusses how man should approach a holy God. Within this first half, chapters 1 through 7, talk about five different sacrifices. Chapters 8 through 10 deal with the priests and their specific role in this process of, in, of us interacting with God. Chapters 11 through 15 provide instructions on what constituted, what's clean and unclean on a myriad of various issues. That'll be fun to get through. Chapter 16 deals with the Day of Atonement. Chapter 17 addresses the handling and the sanctity of blood. So the first half, how man should approach a holy God. The second half of the book, chapters 18 through 27, unpack how man should now live and interact with each other. Again, within this half, you find all kinds of topics that are covered. Things that are really relevant, honestly. Sexual sins. God goes on the record about sex. He talks about contracts. Right kind of contract, bad kind of contract. The redemption of property. Lending money to others. How to do it. What stipulations should be placed on it. God even talks about when to take a vacation. Sets up within the Hebrew calendar some very specific times. Take a break. Relax. God talks about how to make restitution when someone's wronged you. How to honor parents. On and on and on this list goes. Again, the first half, how man should approach a holy God. And the second half, how we should live and interact with one another with God in the midst. Again, super relevant. Now, to understand the substance of Leviticus, never forget the larger purpose behind God freeing the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt. This is an important concept. For starters, God called the Hebrew people, the descendants of Abraham, out of Egypt. He promised to bring them to a land of promise. Why? Well, simply put, to make them his own people, a special people. God desired a relationship with the children of Israel. A relationship that you should keep in mind that was to be intimate. And in many ways, covenantial in nature. Like to do this, God came and he literally made his home in the middle of the camp. He told Moses, build me a tent. It's got to be portable. And I will live with my people. Anthropomorphically, the relationship here was akin to that of a husband and a wife. It's marriage language written all over the law. Israel was to be God's bride. Which, by the way, explains, again, 
marital language, you're entering into a covenantal relationship with someone, what's the first thing? The first stipulation. I love you, I want you to love me, and as a result, have no other gods but me. Let's just, can you be faithful? Later on in the narrative of the Old Testament, when the children of Israel have not been faithful, God tells his prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute. She goes out and cheats on him, and God's like, that's how I feel. It's heavy. It's intimate. It's raw. Building on this, God also called the Jews out of Egypt to make them his own special people in order for this new nation to ultimately demonstrate to the sinful world that there was a better way of living. Think of it like this. God was looking for a body, a nation who'd embody his heart for the lost world. A people who would live lives that would reflect his light into the darkness. So he calls out the Jews so that they would be his people, so that in turn, through this relationship, they'd be a light into the darkness. Broadly speaking, this is one of the main reasons for the law, including Leviticus. God gave specific instructions for how his relationship with Israel was to function, and he established a distinct way their lives were to be ordered. The plan was to present in Israel a blueprint for how God had always intended life to be lived. One of the great criticisms of Leviticus with all of its ancient rules and laws and regulations, is that the way Leviticus goes to set society appears to be regressive. These ancient things and customs. Man, we're regressing. The problem with such a perspective, though, is that it fails to consider God's overarching purpose. For several years, I've coached my son Quincy and U6, and U8 soccer. I don't know a lot about soccer. But I know enough. With, as a matter of fact, with these two specific age groups, there's really only two rules. One, you can't use your hands. You can't pick up the ball. This is a game you'll use your feet. Don't touch the ball. The second rule, again, with U6 and U8 soccer, don't touch it. And don't kick it towards your own goal. Like, pack soccer. Don't pick it up. And move the ball forward. Like, those are the two rules. Progress it forward. Upfield. Now, what's interesting about this is that when you watch an Atlanta United soccer game, yes, the first rule remains in play. They can't pick it up with their hands either. But the second rule, man, it's a, it's a 180. It's an about face. And in fact, kicking the ball back towards your own goal, to the goalie, your goalie, is not only acceptable, but it's actually done with strategic benefits. When an offensive attack fails, or let's just say a team is trying to find the ability to progress the ball upfield problematic, you'll notice that players... They will intentionally kick the ball back or regress the ball 
to their goalie in order to reset the offense. You see, a movement that at first appears regressive, we're going the wrong way, is actually done, why? With the intention of now resetting and moving forward, how we progress the ball forward in a more successful way. Again, it's about perspective. Don't go that way to little ones. No, kick it that way so we can reset a way forward that's effective, that's strategic, that's beneficial. You didn't think I knew all that about soccer, did you? In many ways, what seems on the surface to be regressive in the way that Leviticus aims at structuring society, always keep in mind it's actually God's way of resetting the order of things, kicking the ball back, so that society can now efficiently progress forward in the way he's always intended. Like, don't forget, the original creation, it was the byproduct, the results of what? Perfect order and structure of God. And yet that beautiful order was instantly turned to chaos. In the end, humanity separated from their creator. What makes the tabernacle of meeting here This first verse in Leviticus, so revolutionary, so significant, is that for the first time since the Garden of Eden, the presence of God is again now in the midst of His people. The idea, the picture, remember back in the Garden, how God would come and walk in the midst of them, in the cool of the day. But sin separated that, there was a departure, but now there's a returning Like in many ways, this conversation that God has with Moses, continued in Leviticus, intended was designed to specifically hearken us back to the original creation narrative. Like in a sense, God was kicking the ball all the way back to the beginning in order to reestablish an effective way forward. Let me give you some examples of this. God's order and creation... It necessitated what two fundamental elements? We talked about it. Separation and division, right? It's interesting that after liberating the Jewish people from Egypt, what does he do? Before he embarks on this process of reordering or recreating society, God first separates them. He separates them from the rest of the world. While we have seven days presented in Genesis in which God created, it's worth pointing out that there are seven lengthy sections in Exodus which document God articulating how the tabernacle was to be created. In fact, there are seven pieces of furniture also specifically designed to be created and fashioned. On a side note, they also tie to the seven I am statements of Jesus. The altar of sacrifice, labor of washing, golden lampstand, table of showbread, altar of incense, ark of the covenant, the mercy seat. Aside from this, seven days are eventually required of Aaron and his family, these Levites, to consecrate themselves before engaging in priestly duties. And seven days to sanctify the actual altar for use. Seven, 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 all tying back to the creation. Beyond this, the very language used throughout the process establishes this connection to the creation account. In Exodus 39, verses 42 and 43, we read, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses and the children of Israel, they did. And Moses looked over the work. Notice that he examined it. 
And indeed it had been done as the Lord had commanded. So what does Moses do after examining it? He blesses it. And it was good. This word blessed is the identical Hebrew word we find repeated all throughout Genesis 1. When after creating something that was living, God said, be fruitful and multiply. And we're told God blessed them. In Exodus 40.33, when we read that Moses finished the work of the tabernacle before setting it up in the presence of God descending, Again, we find in that word finish the same Hebrew word in Genesis 2, 1 and 2, kind of the summary. We're told, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. Same word. On the seventh day, God ended the work which he had done, literally finished, and he rested on the seventh day. In the creation account of Genesis, everything is initiated, right? How? And God said, Fill in the blank, right? And God's over and over every day. And God said, and God said, from his word came order and structure, creation operating according to design. Do you think it's an accident then that the book of Leviticus opens? Now the Lord said, same language. In fact, the Hebrew title for this book is one word translated as, and he called. Or literally, God said. You see, what's taking place in Leviticus, and this will help you as we unpack all of this stuff, it's a recreation. After calling his people out of the world, separation, God now intends from this tabernacle of meeting to reorder what sin had destroyed. To fix the chaos brought into the world because of sin and man's rebellion. In this conversation with Moses, the Lord will define a new way of living. By the way, in direct contrast to their experiences of bondage in Egypt. Within the pages of Leviticus, you will find God crafting a new societal structure for His people. You might think that God is going on the record that there's a new way to be human. God intentionally doing what? Kicking the ball all the way back to the beginning by invoking creation language, setting the parameters on how we're going to go forward. Keep in mind, while God's people, the Israelites, think about, okay, they're at Sinai. But what do they look like? I mean, they had three months earlier three weeks earlier, whatever it is, they've just been liberated from bondage. They've been slaves. Egypt, which by the way is this picture of the world, this worldly structure, this fallen society. Egypt, there's no question, had a particular way of ordering society, structuring society. There was unquestionably a hierarchy in Egypt of human value. There were the haves and the have-nots. There were the free Egyptians and the slaves. This societal order devised by a sinful man was completely rigged. Inequality, injustices were rampant throughout Egyptian society. Imagine what it must have been like to experience liberation, to experience freedom, when you've only known your entire life, generation speaking, of injustice and bondage. Like, it's only logical that a nation of slaves would, would 
naturally grapple with the existential question of what it even means to be a human being. I've only been property. Now I'm set free. What does that mean? New challenges emerge. How should society be ordered? Who should be the one making those decisions? The Hebrews had been freed from Egypt. And God wanted to teach them the right way to live and how best to interact with each other. And yet, before doing that, God knew the only way man could live holy and in peace and harmony with each other was for God to come and dwell in their midst. Without that, it could never be achieved. You know, Leviticus, what I love about it is it doesn't, it doesn't present the edicts of God perched in heaven. Or for that matter, even on top of Mount Sinai. Instead, what we find in Leviticus is an appeal from God dwelling in the midst of his people. Because man could not enter the throne room of heaven on account of his separation from sin, God brought the throne room of heaven down to earth, put it in the middle of them. According to Hebrews 8 verse 5, the tabernacle of meeting was literally patterned after the throne room of God and was designed specifically to be the copy and the shadow of heavenly things. While the presence of God in the midst of His people was an essential component to this new way of living, God was about to institute. The people needed to know first that there was a right way and a wrong way He was to be approached. Leviticus will address such things, and I have to say that this is a lesson our society desperately needs to know and be reminded of. God cares not just about approaching Him, but how you approach Him. Ultimately, this explains why Leviticus, it opens. It's been seven chapters doing what? Unpacking a sacrificial system of atonement. Again, another way of kicking the ball back. Think about it this way. From the original sin of man, Adam and Eve in the garden, what happened? In fact, God, after seeing their ineffective coverings of fig leaves, before kicking them out of the garden, sealing their access from the tree of life, what does He do? We're told that God provided them skin, lamb's skin, to be an effective covering. In essence, God offered a blood offering, a sacrifice in the garden to provide them coverings. Everyone wonder, where does this whole idea of sacrifice originate? In the garden, by God. He made the first offering. By the way, the second offering happened at Calvary. Genesis 4. Cain and Abel. What's the first thing we see them doing? Coming to make what? An offering. In fact, the entire scene and how it develops reinforced the idea, again, that God cared not about coming, but how you came. Thus, Cain's offering was rejected. And Abel's was accepted. It's worth noting that following the flood, again, bringing all these things back, following the flood, in Genesis 8, verses 20 through 21, we read that Noah leaves the ark, and what is the first thing he do? He built an altar to the Lord, and he took of every clean animal and every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar, and the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. 
All of that language you find in every chapter of Leviticus. It should also be pointed out that the, the clean animals, the clean birds, how does Noah even know, know that? We don't have the law yet. Again, God has established precedence, principles that Leviticus kicks back to so we can move forward with. God had liber liberated them from Egypt. He declared them to be his people. He chose to dwell in their midst. The sinful condition of man, though, well, it would still, still create a fundamental and unavoidable hurdle. Just because they were his people, just because he had liberated them, didn't mean the wages of sin were no longer death. They still were. Which necessitated an innocent substitute for man's sin, for him to approach a holy and perfect God. Now, we'll begin working our way through, well, the remainder of verse 1. And these five offerings presented in the first seven chapters of Leviticus. And yet, in closing, I want to leave you with one more concept that's essential to your understanding of all that's going to be discussed in Leviticus over the coming weeks. Everything established in this backdrop and the context of Leviticus indicates that God had a distinct purpose behind his handling of the Jewish people. And you got to always remember this. God graciously freed them from their bondage in Egypt when they could not free themselves. He made them his people by dwelling in their midst. Why? He does these things so that they would naturally demonstrate to the lost world the life God intended for all humanity. Like, don't miss this. While God kicked the ball back for good reason, the Levitical system only intended to establish the framework for how the ball would successfully move forward. That's all it does. In fact, by design, the Levitical system would never progress the ball anywhere. Moves it back, sets a framework for moving forward, but it never moves the ball. Like by design. Think about it. The systems within Leviticus, things like the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the law, all of these things only intended to establish a precedent for the way God would accomplish his ultimate plan. Let me go through these quickly. The sacrificial system only reinforced the consequences of sin. Like the death of an innocent substitute was required for both the atonement of sin and purification from sin. But even then, think about it. The blood of animals was woefully inadequate to move the ball forward because all of the sacrifices lacked the type of permanence necessary for genuine righteousness. The formation of the priesthood intended to emphasize the necessary need of sinful man to have an effective mediator through which they could approach a righteous God. And yet the priesthood fell short. There was so much they couldn't do on account of their own sin and wickedness. The tabernacle of meeting articulated God's desire to have a loving relationship with his people. But the structure itself only highlighted separation. The separation of sin. The people could see God's presence, but their access to him was restricted. And God 
remained largely unapproachable. Not even Moses could enter. In the end, though the fundamental purpose of the law was to illustrate what genuine holiness looked like by defining this new way of living, a new way to be human, a way to treat one another, the law fails to move the ball forward because it gave mankind zero assistance in accomplishing that life. Yes, the law commands us how to live, but it leaves us on our own to figure out how to live that way. Like, understand, as part of God's design, according to His ultimate plan, yes, He frees people from bondage in order to make them His people by dwelling in their midst so that their lives would be a light into the world. But the only way any of those things could ever be achieved, the only way the ball could be successfully moved forward to that intended desire would be through a work of Jesus occurring within a framework established in Leviticus. If you don't understand Leviticus, it's hard to even know how Jesus accomplished what He did, yet alone to know what He did. Like in the end, Jesus came and moved the ball forward when He willingly offered Himself as a permanent sacrifice to atone for our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. While every sacrifice in Leviticus proved ineffective, they were all successful because they established a framework for Jesus and what he does on the cross to deliver us from sin and make us righteous. You know, because of the acceptance of his work at Calvary, Jesus' status in heaven, he can act how? As our high priest in heaven, effectively mediating for us a new covenantal relationship with God, granting us access to the throne room of God for the first time. We can all approach through Jesus. How amazing it is to consider in Jesus, we are now the people of God. How? Not by having God physically dwelling in our midst, but by having His Spirit indwelling our hearts. The ball moving forward. And what manifests from these things? Well, it's where the ball always intended to land. Because of Jesus' work, the life of godliness described in the law is attainable. How? Not by what you do. But through a natural manifestation of His Spirit working in our lives. And what does that do? Well, it not only just changes the way we live. Not only does it make us a new human. But in turn, it finally enables us to effectively represent God and the world. The light of God doesn't just dwell in the midst of the camp. It dwells in the midst of his people. Again, the end, the key to unlocking Leviticus is not to view the book as a list of things you should be doing, but to instead see it as one, God intentionally setting the framework for the work Jesus would do for you, and two, God explaining how that work, the one He does for you, should then naturally influence the way you live and order your life. How to relate to God? We can only do it through Jesus. A work He does for us. And that should naturally produce a new person. Again, how we live. The natural manifestation of those things. You see, Leviticus is God establishing the precedent for grace as well as 
the many ways in which His grace really does change everything. And so, Father, Lord, we just set this study...